Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, a senior investment strategist at Bernstein and head of our investment insights team. I'm excited today to be joined by Bernstein Research's U.S. quantitative senior analyst, Ann Larson. So Ann has a great top-down view of the overall market and lessons from the latest round of quarterly earnings and a range of other perspectives that we thought would be useful to discuss with you today. So Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Ann, we, we just finished a round of quarterly reporting for earnings, the, the first quarter reports, and many of the analysts have updated their models and their outlooks, and I know you have too. This is something that you watch really closely and you've been publishing on for a number of years. For our listeners' benefit, before we get into the trends that you saw, what is it that makes earnings season so important? That's a good question. So, you know, earnings season is a time when the companies really give you new news, right? So that's a time when you get a lot of news, not just on earnings, but also revenues and all the other fundamentals. You get guidance from the companies on how they think they're going to do next quarter for the rest of the year, how they think business is going. And you also see because it's watched so closely by other institutional investors, you do tend to see big price moves associated with Mm -hmm. either the earnings announcement itself or what the company said in the call following the earnings, whether they said anything interesting about uh, future quarters. Yeah. Okay, good. And there's obviously not only the report that comes out, but also the conference call. So you get a lot of that incremental detail that your team and and the rest of the street looks at closely. So if we think about the first quarter, which just concluded on March the 31st and the reports that came out subsequent to that, what stood out to you this time around? Yeah, so earnings growth was really strong. On average, we saw 22% earnings growth on 8% revenue growth. So sales year over year went up 8%, earnings 22%. The number of companies that beat the streets estimates were 90%. 90% of companies beat the sell sides estimates for earnings. So that is a 13-year high. That's extremely high. The average is 78%. Most companies will sort of guide the sell side analysts down to a number they can beat. You know, the number of beats is usually high to start with. And this just blew away, you know, those numbers. We saw really good results from financials, technology, Mm -hmm. consumer discretionary. So some of those recovery trades and retail and so forth. And we've also seen that uh, the magnitude of the surprises is very high relative to what we've seen in the past. So usually the companies beat estimates by three to five percent above the sell side consensus. Mm -hmm. And this quarter it was 12 percent, you know, a lot more companies beating than usual. But the amount that they are exceeding consensus by is also very high. Okay, a more broadly held beat across the board for companies and sectors. And then when they beat, they beat by even more than they normally do. I would assume, uh, and that, that that would have led to some pretty good price movements for those companies that did beat after they reported. That true or not true? Um, not really. <laughs> so the companies that beat on both earnings and revenues went up by about 1%. And the companies that missed on both those numbers went down by about 2%. On that day that they reported, you're saying? Yeah, with a two-day window. And so the reason that we look at, uh, you know, a window surrounding is sometimes a number, you know, gets out and people, you know, whisper numbers, things like that. So we do uh, some performance around the mm-hmm. announcement date. And, you know, a lot of companies beat by a tremendous amount. 
and they actually underperformed on the print. And the reason for that is investors know that these numbers are quite exaggerated because last year in the height of the pandemic was a disaster, right? So (laughs) it was a given that companies were going to be announcing pretty great growth when you look at it year over year, 2021 over 2020. And the market had a tremendous run-up pre-earnings and priced in a lot of this good news. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we thought that there might not be as big of a reaction as usual because the market was kind of ahead of itself there. And then the final reason I think that we didn't get some outsized reactions to some outsized earnings announcements is because companies are looking through this quarter. So like I said, they knew it was going to be a great quarter, but what's going to happen after that? You know, year over year, when whenever you have earnings that are really depressed, of course, you have easy compares. And that's what happened this quarter. And it's actually going to happen next quarter again. But they want to know what's going to happen in the back half of the year. Right. Do all companies give guidance or, or only a select number? Uh, no. <laughs> so not all companies give guidance in the first place. And the number of companies giving guidance dropped dramatically uh, last year as companies just didn't know what their earnings were going to be because, you know, we've never had a pandemic before and everything was changing. And so a lot of companies stopped giving guidance and the sell side analysts really depend on, you know, guidance from the company to make their forecasts. And so this year we've seen a rebound in the number of companies giving guidance, but it's still really not back to pre-pandemic levels. So 22% earnings growth in the first quarter versus the first quarter of last year. What are you, what's the, the street expecting for the balance of the year? The estimates for the rest of the year are also very high. So yeah. Q2 is even higher uh, forecasts at 60% year over year earnings growth than we saw in the first quarter. So 60% for Q2. And I guess that's because that's when everything fell apart. You have a full quarter, Q2 of 2020, whereas maybe it was one month in Q1 of 2020. Right. So mid-March was kind of when everything shut down, right? So the second quarter of 2020 was the worst quarter of the pandemic. And so now you're going to see huge earnings growth next quarter. And then for the rest of the year, still very positive, 22% earnings growth forecast for Q3 and 16% earnings growth for Q4. So usually what we see in a normal year is that as the quarter is approaching, they're sort of overly optimistic at the beginning of the year that things are going to be better than they actually wind up being. And so as the, as the earnings season approaches, the analysts are usually cutting estimates. In this case, because of the lack of guidance and the uncertainty, the analysts just undershot, right? So so the companies are beating, like we said, by larger margins than usual, and the analysts are raising estimates to try to catch up. So usually we would say, oh yeah, these earnings growth numbers for the next three quarters are Mm -hmm. too high, and they're probably going to come down as we get closer. But actually the opposite has been happening, and the recovery has been so strong that they've actually been raising numbers into the quarters. And so how does valuations play into all of this? As you look at the universe, there's obviously expensive stocks. A lot of our investors and clients talk about the market being expensive. How does that play into earnings season and and what it might portend for the balance of the year in terms of price action? That was another sort of dynamic that we saw going on with reactions to earnings, right? So when we said that the market had a huge run-up pre-earnings and that sort of dampened some of the reactions to these great numbers that these companies were reporting, we actually saw a consistent pattern of the most expensive 
companies were the ones that had the worst reactions, regardless mm-hmm. of what they reported. So a lot of them reported just spectacular numbers across the board, but because they were so expensive, they didn't budge, right? <laughs> Many people worry about the technology sector as it relates to valuations. What did you see coming out of Q1 looking into the balance of the year for tech? Technology has had a huge run, has led the market, especially the big cap technology stocks up until this year, pretty much, right? So we've seen huge outperformance of the top five, top 10 mega cap technology companies or the technology sector in general. And up until this year, that has been led by superior earnings growth. So it made sense, you know, in a market where you're, you know, you're basically at zero rates and the technology sector has better earnings than everyone else that the technology sector would lead and it did. But now with the recovery, there are plenty of other sectors, you know, that have better earnings growth than the tech sector, right? Because they're more cyclically sensitive, right? Exactly. And so when growth is scarce, people will chase it at almost any price. And they did, right? And that's what that's what led to the run-up in the technology sector. Now what we're experiencing is that other sectors are, are posting better growth because of the economic cycle and the recovery and where we are. We're seeing a 50-year high in uh, the number of unprofitable stocks in the tech sector. So we have a lot of these sort of dream stocks where, you know, they're not going to make money for the next year or the next five years, but there's some, you know, big story or hope or long-term forecast that they will make money far into the future. That unfortunately is bad news when rates are rising, right? Because Mm -hmm. (laughs) those are long duration stocks and those tech stocks, these unprofitable tech stocks are going to be at a disadvantage when interest rates are going up. What, you know, short duration stocks, stocks that are making money right now, which tend to be more value stocks are the ones that have an advantage. So for a long time with rates low or near zero, technology, when you're talking about discounted cash flows, had the advantage. Now, uh, short duration stocks, which are typically uh, more in the value sectors, have an advantage. It's a really interesting point just for our listeners. You know, Anne is bringing up a nuanced point about duration, i.e. sensitivity to movements in interest rates, either long duration or short duration, typically a bond term, but we're using it here to talk about equities. And that's been in the conversation amongst the Wall Street analysts and portfolio managers for quite some time because these longer duration companies, like many of the technology and growth uh, stocks have done well as interest rates have fallen. And if it were to be the case that interest rates were to rise and be on a sustainable path higher, that might be a headwind for those companies that did do well as rates fell. The opposite would be true. Very similar to fixed income, that bonds that have sensitivity to rising interest rates. And I want to move on, but you had said something about value stocks. I want to bring these two elements together, technology and value. Are there value-oriented technology companies? Yes, (laughs) that might seem impossible. So (laughs) technology is a sector where you can take a barbell approach. This is not true in most sectors. In most sectors, the sector itself is either a value sector or a growth sector, and that's it. In the tech space, there are value stocks and growth stocks. So some of the value stocks would be like IBM or some of the hardware Mm -hmm. names, right? Versus Mm -hmm. the sky high Apples and all the mega cap stocks. So what I mean by barbell is you can make money in the technology sector by owning both the 
value side mm-hmm. of the, mm-hmm. the continuum and the growth side, as long as you stay away from the middle. The middle is what we call uh, growth stock purgatory, basically, because they're not cheap enough to be <laughs> to be interesting to value investors, but they're not growing fast enough to be interesting to growth investors. So they're just kind of stuck in the middle and they're not really attractive to value or growth investors and they just you know languish there. So that's what's interesting about the tech sector. So when value works in tech, tends to be in environments like we're in right now, where we're seeing mm-hmm. big value rotation, they're benefiting from that. Also times when there's a thirst for yield, right? So these stocks typically pay dividends, whereas the faster growing tech stocks do not. So in those kinds of periods, we do see pretty good performance for the value side of tech. Let me just dig a little bit further on this. Typically, when we talk about value, it's because you know a company is value because it had some blemish, some issue that they had to deal with. Is that the case here? Or are these technology value companies, just not the growthier technology companies. And so so their valuations take the hit. There are secular headwinds that we see with a lot of the value side of tech, you know, with the hardware industry as an example. The prices of hardware is coming down and the benefits Mm -hmm. of software, having the subscriptions that people pay on a regular basis, having these recurring revenues. And that whole model of the software industry versus the hardware industry is really challenged for hardware versus software. So you've seen software just having a huge run over the last few years and hardware just sort of having a hard time. So I think that, you know, this is something that we think about when we talk about the rise of intangibles, you know, in in the market and how things like the customer subscriptions and recurring revenues really factor in to valuations and don't really get reflected in the typical valuation ratios that we look at, like price to book and price to earnings, right? And price to cash flow. So maybe those software stocks, you know, at 40 times earnings aren't as expensive as you might think because the intangibles aren't being properly accounted for. That is a, a whole different topic onto itself, but talking about, you know, the valuations of say software versus hardware. I think that's a great point. Just to just to go through all the different parts of technology. Technology is what and something like twenty five percent of the S and P five hundred. So it's the biggest sector by far, and it's not monolithic. It's not just one kind of stock or company. There's old tech, new tech, value, growth, and so I, I appreciate you bringing up that point. So so far we've talked about the Q one earnings. We've talked about the technology sector. We've talked about value within technology. What else are you talking about when you go out and you talk to investors? What what are the other opportunities out there? I think there's a real opportunity for what we call quality on sale. So quality is something that a lot of our investors, a lot of our clients like, right? So who doesn't like quality in anything, but particularly stocks and companies that you're going to invest in. The problem is that and the way that we define quality is sort of in a multi-factor sense. So we look at things like ROE, we look at earning stability, we look at debt ratios, net cash ratios, we look at margins. And so we come up with a composite score of, you know, how does this company um, score high versus low quality? And then the problem is that, you know, these companies that are great, you know, it's not a secret, right? So everybody knows mm-hmm. <laughs> which companies are, yeah. are higher quality and which companies are lower quality. And there's generally a premium already associated with uh, high quality stocks. So in general, you know, you're not going to get some huge bargain on on the best stocks out there. They're mm-hmm. not going to be the cheapest stocks out there. But the performance of quality tends to rise and fall with risk aversion. When investors are very risk off or risk averse, they tend to have flight to quality, and you see those stocks really outperforming beyond the the normal premium associated with those great companies. And then when you see 
that investors are willing to take on more risk and they're risk mm-hmm. on or less risk averse, then you see the opposite happen, right? So right now, quality tends to outperform in a crisis, underperform mm-hmm. on the way out. Yep. And we saw that happen, you know, last year at the height of the pandemic, we saw, you know, massive rotation into quality, low leverage, those types of stocks. And mm-hmm. then this year we saw a rotation out of those names, which were very expensive into a lower quality or value names. And that doesn't mean that I think, you know, that you should just avoid quality stocks, you know, for the time being, because that has created some opportunities. So some companies you know, while not being the cheapest companies around, have been unfairly sort of hit with the same brush as all these other companies. So they're what we call quality on sale. So -hmm. they're great companies and they got sort of caught up in the recovery rotation and their earnings growth. So we're not talking about the companies where they say, oh yeah, we're going to grow, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. They're they're posting great growth right now. And they just sort of got caught up in the big wave. And so we, we consider them to be great opportunities. And if we look back over time, you talk a lot about factors or or styles, you know, these factors, these characteristics of different stocks. If you look at quality over time, has that been one where if you were to just hold quality companies for decades, you would have done better than the average stock? Yes, I say that quality does have an alpha associated with it, but it's it's quite small. It's not as big as you would think it is. right? So Mm -hmm. and that's because they're already price for that level of quality. So you have to pay up. If you want the best stocks around, the best companies around, the highest quality companies around, you got to pay up for it. And so that sort of eats into the returns over time. So there is a positive alpha. It's about 150 basis points. Maybe it's not as high a year. So maybe it's not as high as you might think it is, but that's because those stocks are already discounting that level of quality. What you really tend to see is sort of high quality versus low quality sort of it's episodic. So the performance Mm -hmm. tends to be episodic that varies with the risk regime. So we were in a risk off, a risk averse regime for a long time. And that just actually increased when we got into uh, the pandemic in 2020. And then late in 2020. And so far in 2021, we're in a more risk on mode. So investors are more willing to, you know, they see that the recovery is happening, where everything's going on the economic front, everything's reopening, everything's great. They're willing to take on more risk. Mm -hmm. And so they're not willing to pay up for the highest quality companies around. So that goes along with what I said earlier about when growth is scarce, people will chase it. It's not scarce anymore. You've done a lot of work on ESG, environmental, social, and governance-related investing. What are, what are your findings there? Yeah, so this is really a growing area in the U.S. Europe is far ahead of us as far as yeah. incorporating ESG into their investment process. In the U.S., um, it has been a little slower to catch on. So really, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a big rise in interest in ESG. And I think from our investor base, one of the reasons why there's so much interest is because they see that flows have been, you know, when we look at the flows into all active funds, um, more of that is going into ESG funds than any other type of fund. In a way, it's a way for them to make money. (laughs) That's where the flows are going. That's where they want to be. It's also true that it's what we call a defensive active management, really. So, you know, 
there's a lot of uh, passive ESG products out there, uh, ETFs that follow ESG scores, you know, and there's been a flow from, from active to passive that's been hitting the asset management industry for many years, right? So ESG is a type of fund where you can really defend being an active manager because to be successful, you could say, oh, I'm going to engage with these companies mm-hmm. and you know, convince them to be better over time. And we found that the companies that are improving versus the level, again, the level of ESG is similar to what we talked about with quality. You know, the ones that are the great responsible investors and have very high sustainability rankings, there's already a premium associated with Mm -hmm. them. Everyone wants to own the best in class. You know, you're not going to get the best prices on those, on those names. Now where you can really get some alpha or some performance with ESG investing is if you invest in the ones that are going to improve over time. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that they are the worst offenders. Usually the, you know, the, the biggest bang for your buck as far as alpha with improvement is if they are one of the worst offenders already, you know, in the first place, and then Mm -hmm. they get better, not the best stock getting a little bit better. It's really the bad ones getting better. And so active managers say, you know, we can engage with these companies and make them better over time. And that's a reason why you should invest in these active ESG funds versus passive. So that's why they want to get into this business. And we've seen a huge rise in interest, both from the investor level of people wanting to buy these funds and Mm -hmm. asset managers wanting to you know, open up these funds to satisfy that demand. Well, I can certainly underscore and back up what, what you've just said. We've got a lot of interest from many of our clients in investing responsibly. They want to align their values with how their money is managed. So this is a growing area, certainly for us. And, and so we've built out that platform. So everything that you said is spot on within Bernstein. Before I let you go, Anne, I want to ask you about this value rotation. You've touched on it a little bit as it relates to the recovery and the earnings growth and, and quality versus lower quality. Talk a little bit about this value rotation and whether or not you think it has legs. We do think it has legs for a few reasons. So one is that when I talked about the risk aversion signal before, uh, we actually measure that by looking at things like bond yield spreads and commodity indices or things like consumer sentiment to come up with a composite score of whether the market is risk on or risk off and whether it's going to be that way for the next three months. And so far our risk aversion signals are still risk on. And so risk on means that value factors tend to work better than say momentum. So when you get a switch to risk on, the momentum factor is usually the factor that underperforms the most because you have now a trend change, right? So before you had a flight to quality, you were risk off, all the big quality stocks were outperforming and now you get a switch to risk on, that broke the trend. You don't have a new trend going yet. We don't know what it is. So the momentum factors tend to fail during those inflection points. And when you're in risk on, value tends to work much better than growth. That's one reason. The the second reason is that dispersions are still very wide. So we look at what we mean by dispersion is the difference between the cheapest stocks and the most expensive stocks or the cheapest stocks versus the market. So we want to see, you know, how much misvaluation is there in the market? You know, are cheap stocks really cheap? Sometimes they're not, right? (laughs) Sometimes very compressed. And so when you have compressed valuations, that means that you can get one of the cheapest stocks at the same price practically as average and same thing for the expensive. So right now, there's still a lot of misvaluation in the market. Spreads are still really wide. They've come down a little bit from all-time highs, but they you know, are still 
wider than we've seen almost any time in, in history. The final reason would be that we still see macro support, right? So value works best when the economy is improving. Um, also, when we think that we're going to see inflation and when rates are going up. So all of these things, you know, potentially are either already happening or are potentially happening. And we see that, you know, not only is that good for value in general, I mean, it's good for, you know, for example, two, two big value sectors, you know, energy does mm-hmm. great in inflationary environments, financials usually do great when, when rates are rising. And so um, we do see that this rotation probably still has legs. Well, Anne, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, This was certainly very insightful. And um, given that we've got earnings season four times a year, we'd love to have you back. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this conversation has shed a light on some of the interesting dynamics that are happening beneath the surface of the market. As always, we'll continue to monitor these data points and others and share all the evidence and what they're signaling with you here on The Pulse. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and email us with your thoughts or questions or please any feedback that you have to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bernstein PWM. Thanks again and be well. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.